This episode is brought to you by Aircraft Accessories of Oklahoma. When it's time for an aircraft component inspection, overhaul, repair, or replacement, you need experienced technicians you can trust and friendly service you can count on. Aircraft Accessories of Oklahoma, a family-owned business since 1959, delivers just that. Our techs have real-world experience and provide sales, service, and overhaul for piston engine aircraft accessories. We also have limited turbine capabilities such as fuel pumps, starter generators, and prop governors. And we can overhaul propellers ranging from fixed pitch to turbine. Propeller pickup and delivery service is available. And one more thing, mention this podcast to receive 5% off your next sale, service, or overhaul. Visit aircraftaccessoriesofok.com. This podcast is sponsored by Genesis Aerosystems, a Moog company and leading provider of autopilots for rotor and fixed-wing aircraft. The Genesis STEC 5000 is the latest digital autopilot providing increased safety plus decreased pilot workload. It's being certified for Part 23 and Part 25 retrofit aircraft such as high-performance turboprop and turbine jet aircraft. To learn more about the STEC 5000, visit genesis-aerosystems.com. This week on Hangar Talk, Mr. Baker heads to Washington. And we're learning about stalls all wrong. Also, a new airplane from Cirrus. And why icons come to grief. All right, Dave, you ready to do some Hangar Talk? Let's do some Hangar Talk, Ian. From AOPA, your freedom to fly. This is Hangar Talk. Attention, 1056, turn right, heading 130, contact final, 132.4. Turn right, sky back. With your hosts, Ian Twombly and David Tulitz. This is Hangar Talk. Welcome to Hangar Talk, everybody. I'm Ian Twombly. And I'm David Tillis. David, a great show. We've got a ton of news to talk about this week. We're actually going to do a little more than we usually do. But folks need to stick around, especially those who are interested in flying for career, because we've got Jeremy King, a major airline pilot, with us today. Jeremy King's a longtime friend of mine, Ian, and he grew up in the Atlanta area and really grew up flying tail draggers and learning how to wrench on airplanes. And he made his way all the way up to a major airline, and he flies. We can't say who he flies with, but he's having a great time, and he's going to explain how other people can follow in his footsteps. Okay, awesome. So, yeah, stick around for that. But first, let's start with the news. So we mentioned Mark Baker, president and CEO of AOPA, headed to Washington a couple weeks ago and testified on two congressional committees, actually. And the message is very simple. No user fees. No private control of the air traffic management system. And that has not changed since I've been here at AOPA. Yeah. Yeah. Or long before that, for that matter. Exactly. Yeah. Yep. So I think um, Ted Cruz, the senator from Texas, has kind of started to float this idea again a little bit. So very initial stages. But uh, they did have a hearing and uh, Mark Baker was invited and said, okay, look, General aviation, they're for uh, modernization, which of course we are. We don't need to have the status quo necessarily. But in terms of paying for it, when you look around the world, the most envied system is by far the U.S. system, and it should be publicly funded. Exactly. And, you know, Ian, the air traffic control system handles more than 44,000 flights a day. That's what Mark told the Senate subcommittee. And privatization would do nothing to reduce those delays or lower ticket prices or, or really speed up modernization. So it's, it's actually not a winning combination to talk about privatization in the current air traffic control system. Yeah, that's right. And so he also mentioned, I think, when they were uh, working with the House at the House Committee, just, you know, thank them for some of the work they've been doing, looking at future jobs in aviation that we know we're going to have to uh, 
help push a little bit and help sponsor and, and some other things. So overall, a, a good visit there, I think, for Mark Baker. And uh, definitely will, I think, have more as they start to talk about this modernization effort again. I will stay tuned. Yeah. So moving on, stalls. You've done them. I've done them. We've all done a few. We have. Ian, I want to tell you, I want to let our podcast listening audience know that I really was impressed with a, a story that you wrote about Stalls. This is sort of a, I don't want to say it's an opinion piece because you backed it up with a lot of facts and figures, but I was fascinating at the topic and how you pulled together a really a deep look at these stalls and what we're doing right now and what could be changed in the future to help avoid some of these tragic accidents. And I would like for you to explain to us what you were thinking when you are writing this article. Yeah, I mean, just a few things. Uh, one is that the Air Safety Institute, if you're not kind of a stat nerd, you might not know that the AAS, AAS, AOPA Air Safety Institute, um, they go deep into the accident record and, and look beyond just sort of the total numbers and the rates and things like that into into these sort of trends that we'll find. And so you can read them in the null report and then they'll, they'll dive even deeper in certain subsets of data. And so they did that a couple of years ago with stalls and they found that basically this idea of, of the base to final turn. And this is what really got me, I think got me kind of started thinking about this stuff is that ASI found that the base to final turn, while, you know, pilots were completely obsessed with this, right? We think this is, you know, sort of our light GA coffin corner in a way, you know, and it's just not true. It's amazing. It's, it's, it's essentially an old wives' tale. And so, you know, you could make the argument, well, that's because we train for it and we're very aware of it. And so we've avoided it. And that may be the case. But really, if, if we want to focus in the future, we should stop talking about the base to final turn and talk a lot more, actually, about takeoff stalls, departure stalls. I was impressed with the figures you came together with out of that NAL report, Ian. 36 stall accidents on takeoff and 24 during maneuvering, 13 during descent and approach, and 46 during landing. But basically you were saying that the repeated, the repeat offenders here, you know, during training we learn how to do it uh, straight ahead. Mm -hmm. And that's not what is really causing the, the most deaths and fatalities and damage and accidents. That's, that's not, it just simply is not the case. The takeoff stalls are, are one, and also you were mentioning at a higher G-load and also at a higher angle of attack. So mm -hmm. uh, basically in a, in, a, in a turn where you're, it's like an accelerated stall. Yeah, yeah, that's right. And I think a lot of pilots, they never experience accelerated stalls. I mean, if, if you've gone through private training, chances are the only stalls you've ever done are these kind of 1G straight ahead, power off, very slow developing stalls. Same thing with even the power on stall, which I know a lot of pilots are a little apprehensive about because the nose goes up, you know, maybe 10, 12, 15 degrees, whatever. We, we very slowly approach these very methodically. Occasionally, you know, you'll practice turning stalls. But, you know, that's it. It's like cross-controlled, secondary, accelerated. None of that stuff is really practiced widespread. I mean, some instructors do this. And I think it all comes back to, and this is, you know, something else that kind of got me thinking about this, is that a lot of instructors are afraid of stalls. And I know that sounds crazy, but it's like if you, especially, you know, you start kind of teaching other instructors and you find that many of them have never gone beyond these sort of basic stalls. And so they themselves are afraid of it. And that fear is absolutely transmitted to their students. I mean, the students are modeling that same behavior. And so it's like this vicious cycle where, we're, uh, you know, so many of us are just afraid of stalls and afraid to explore the entire envelope of the airplane. And as a result, you know, it's like we might recognize that straight ahead 1G stall really well, but all the rest of it, we have no idea. Well, I guess one reason is because it actually is dangerous. I mean, yeah. you know, unless you're proficient at it. 
Or perhaps if you're in an aerobatic airplane and mm-hmm. may, maybe you're actually performing a little bit of aerobatic awareness, uh, which I did during my private. It was not required, you know, but I, I took extra time and extra money. Actually, back in Atlanta, I went with Dave Hirschman and we did we did spins and we did, you know, entry to we I would say aggressive entry yes. into some of these situations. But you're right. So I think the instructors probably are afraid of that. And I'm wondering if it's the aircraft that we're training in also. Yeah, they're very forgiving. Absolutely. And, you know, it's funny because you mentioned the aerobatics. I had this aha moment, and I will never forget this. You know, they, of course, your, your entire learning process, you learn that exceeding the angle of attack is what causes the stall, right? AOA is exceeding AOA. Critical AOA is what causes the stall. But the way we practice with, you know, release back pressure, full power, bring the nose up, sort of conditions your mind, I think, to think that power is what eventually gets us out of a stall. And that is absolutely not the case. I mean, it might help minimize altitude loss, but it doesn't break the stall, especially in a light G airplane. So I remember we were gone. I, I did some aerobatic training, and then I became kind of a very light, I'll call it, aerobatic instructor. I, very, very basic stuff. But I remember as part of this course, we would one of the one of the exercises was on the down line of a loop was to pull on the stick. It's like yank back, try and pull out early. And you find that what happens is it's like the stick breaks off in your hand. That's what you were talking about in the, in yes. the article. Yeah. And so you're pointed uh-huh. straight at the ground, you yeah. pull back, and it's like it's like the stick is detached from the airplane. And you realize in that moment, you're like, holy cow, this is exceeding AOA. This is what happens. And you start to realize that stick position, you know, that back pressure, constantly pulling back on the yoke, whatever, that's what it really comes down to. And so I think, you know, if people got just a little far beyond that, if they, you know, did accelerated stalls in basic training, you know, banked 45 degrees and pulled below maneuvering speed, I mean, they would see that, first of all, it can happen very quickly the stall. And second of all, you know, that G load increases, you know, that increasing load factor increases stall speed. And, and you can start to really see how this stuff works and know then to avoid it in certain situations. Well, that is interesting. And uh, you're talking about the bank angle and maybe, uh, you know, 45 degrees and going 60 knots. Now, all of a sudden, Ian, if you're not centered up on, you know, with your, with your ball, the one of those wings in most aircraft, they're going to take a pretty rapid dip you're going to be in a situation that you're going to really need to know how to get out of pretty quick. Yep. Yep. That's exactly right. So yeah. Anyway, I just, I had fun writing this, but, and thanks for the, thanks for that. But um, no, I mean, really it's, it's just a call to do some, I think for all of us to whatever it takes, whether it's aerobatics or basic spins or whatever, just to get more comfortable with stalls and to explore the envelope a little more fully and, and stop thinking that just because we can pass this check ride doing these one G stalls, that we're prepared for every situation because that's just not the case. I like the article, Ian. I'm glad that you wrote it, and it does give us something to think about. And maybe folks might want to chat a little bit further on the subject on our AOPA hangar. Maybe we'll dive into that at some point in the future. Yeah, yeah, that's right. All right, we'll be right back. So, hey, speaking of training, a new airplane from Cirrus, and this is a really interesting idea. They're calling it the track. And it is a Cirrus dedicated to the training market. So the the track stands for training aircraft and it's a <laughs> so, I love that so the Cirrus track that's T-R-A-C and let's let our listeners know that this is still a $410,000 airplane mm-hmm. but it's Cirrus's version of a trainer and one interesting thing that Dave Hirschman pointed out and he actually flew uh, the airplane and, and did a photo shoot with it is that it has 
uh, a landing gear configuration on a Cirrus. Hmm. So did they make a retractable gear Cirrus? Well, the answer is you'll have to read the article. <laughs> now, I'll say I'll let our listeners know because they're probably listening while they're driving or something. Yeah, right. No, they, they don't have a retractable gear Cirrus. But the whole point is to get pilots ready to go as if they were training in or for a commercial airliner, which does have retractable gear. So there's a handle. There are lights. And the uh, instructor can fail the gear as well as a number of other things. But this is a real interesting aircraft, and it, I think it's going to do some, probably going to do some heavy lifting, get more pilots on the career track. Yeah, so you know, you might not think of a Cirrus SR twenty as a training airplane, and that's because in your in your normal sort, let's call it mom and pop flight school, you don't really find them that often. I mean, you can, but it's not very uh, common. Really, what they do is university programs, ab initio, that sort of thing. And you can imagine, you know, this they mentioned, you know, Lufthansa. Uh, I think Emirates, maybe a couple others use this in Abinitio. And for them, this is a really great deal because, you know, you've got obviously this modern cockpit integrated display. Now you've got the landing gear simulation. And uh, I could see this being a really good step for them. So just to some really smart things that Cirrus did here, you know, they made the seats more durable. They did. And easy to clean, which is really smart. You've got analog backup instruments, which is important. Let's see. They put a radio transmit switch in the back. Now, that one I find interesting. I wonder how often that'll be used. I like that because that, in a way, that puts an observer into the mix, and the observer could act as either air traffic control center advisor, or they could, you know, basically be, I guess they could sit in as a CFI. Anyway, they could, you know, bark some instructions out or fail some things or pretend to fail some things. And, uh, and at the same time, the, the person that's kind of watching from that backseat could really observe and, and get a little bit of insight, too. Yeah, I, I think this is a smart move. You know, you mentioned it's still 410 grand, which is, you know, a lot of money. But it's not that out of bounds, really, for the training market these days. Not really. And don't forget, you still, because this is Cirrus, you still get an airframe parachute and an airbag seatbelts. Plus, it's got an interesting engine into it. Uh, we didn't talk about that. Yet either the 215 horsepower Lycoming IO390. Hmm. So that engine is something that uh, I think we'll probably see a little bit more of too. So more technology, a little bit different on the power plant side as well. And uh, full Garmin perspective glass. Yeah, that's nice. Folks are, I mean, they're training for the big time. It's got a flight management system. it got buttons to push. Mm -hmm. I mean, it looks like you're on the deck of a Southwest or Delta flight. Yeah, and I mean, heck, it's even got a side stick. So it's like if you're destined for an Airbus, there you go. That's right. There <laughs> you're you go. Used to good it. point. Very good point. <laughs> side yoke, whatever, yeah, for Cirrus. But yeah, hey, let's stick with new airplanes. The Icon. Everybody kind of talks about it. You know, we've talked a lot about it, the design, the marketing. And so Dave Hirschman went on a junket and came back, not with a story about what's up with manufacturing or anything else, but I think a really interesting story here about Icon accidents and looking into what's happened with those. Well, Dave Hirschman also has flown an Icon across the country before, so he's got he's gained a lot of experience in that model. Yeah. And so, Ian, the first thing that we hear about um, when we're, we're talking about Icons and, and the accident rate, we all think that it's inexperienced pilots. It must be someone that's got enough money to get one. They don't have much flight training, and they're out yanking and banking and just having a good time, and they, they really aren't able to come to terms with the aircraft, and bad things happen. Yeah. That's not what Dave found out, is it? No, no, it's not. And so there have been about 100 airplanes delivered so far, uh, a few more. And so in one sense, you know, everybody's fear about this thing being unsafe is a little warranted. There's been two fatal accidents, and I think four more have been um, destroyed in non-fatal accidents. That's not a good record for a first batch of airplanes. Interestingly, 
none of them have been the fault of the airplane. And it's all been pilot judgment, pilot error, and experienced pilots who are really taking this thing completely beyond its limits and their limits. Yeah, and I think Dave commented early on that the aircraft is built so well that it does instill a lot of confidence in the pilots. Like you said, these are high-time pilots. I mean, Icon's first fatal accident involved one of the designers. Yeah. You know, and, and this is someone who, uh, John Karkow, who was not just a designer at Icon, but was renowned for his involvement in engineering, yeah. you know, in, in the industry. And he had already logged like, what, 600 and some odd hours in the A5. Yeah, probably the most experienced pilot, I would guess. And, um, you know, had to pick the wrong canyon to fly up at low altitude. And unfortunately, he and his passenger were killed. I mean, you've got obviously the the Roy Halliday crash. He had 700 hours. I didn't realize he had 700 hours under his belt. And he was a multi-engine and instrument rated pilot. Yep. You've got an ex-Air Force pilot who destroyed an airplane in Miami when he hit the water too hard. Right. You know, they cracked the hull, which is incredible. you got to think of the force of that thing and what happened. You've got an experienced demo pilot who they think probably took off overweight. So it's like, you know, it's really no fault of the airplane. And, uh, you know, we talked about the marketing because a lot of the marketing had these really slick, you know, low-altitude sort of maneuvering videos, which made the thing look like so much fun. And, you know, some of that is happening, but it's pilots who really should know better. They should know better. And maybe maybe it is just that uh, feeling of invincibility because the aircraft is so good and so docile in its handling. But I am still worried about the brand. You and I talked about this before when we review the gamma numbers. You know, they're, they're not cranking them out as Icon expected they would at this point in time. There were a lot of backlogs at the beginning because there was keen interest in it. But the aircraft went up in price. And like we are talking about now, it had some high-profile accidents and other incidents. So I'm still worried about the brand. I've never flown in one, so I can't comment on that either way. But I hope that they're able to pull out of this because it is a really interesting design. It, pro- it has the potential to get a lot more people involved in aviation. Yeah, no, I totally agree. So, yeah, I think it's going to be interesting to see what happens with the company. You're right in the future. But um, I, I anticipate what Dave is writing here will continue, which is that probably the low-time pilots will find it, you know, the, the built-in safety mechanisms and, and aerodynamic sort of tricks and tools that they've designed into the thing are probably helping those low-time pilots and the experienced ones who are, um, you know, coming to grief, as Dave says. So, unfortunately... So, hey, speaking of, I love these transitions today. Speaking of coming to grief. Coming to grief, that's right. This a business, not people, thankfully. Uh, the Redbird Skyport has closed. That is interesting, Ian, because you were reminding me that the very first AOPA regional fly-in was at the Redbird Skyport, and that was in San Marcos, Texas in 2014. Yep. And uh, folks who listen to us online and, and on the podcast, they know that we talk a little bit about Redbird and all the things that they do with their you know, flight simulations. But this is not good, not good in the FBO world. And there's a couple of things that came together here that really, really didn't help the Skyport survive. You know, it was uh, just, a, I think, a, maybe they were too early in the planning and uh, maybe they didn't have as much support as they were going to garner from local politicians and folks in that part of Texas. But uh, but soon it will no longer be. Yeah, it is sad. I mean, it's an incredible facility. They started it, so it's, it's a little confusing sometimes with the marketing, but they, they had kind of the the co-located, and I'll say co-located, I mean, it's in the building, the Flight Sim Flight Training Center, which was really a test lab. They're, you know, they built these simulators and they felt like 
these things were special and could offer something, but they didn't really know how to integrate them into flight training. And so they started this school with the idea that eventually somebody could train completely in the simulator by themselves alone, then sort of transition with an instructor in the simulator and then transition to the airplane with the idea of bringing the cost way down, making it, you know, you could put it all over cities and the whole thing. And that's, a, a, I think, a fascinating experiment. And they did learn a lot from it. They have now kind of, with Gift and some others, gotten farther along that stage. But at the same time, they started this FBO. And they, they put in some, you know, some sort of test stuff with customer experience and other things. And Jerry Gregoire, the, you know, the founder of uh, Redbird, who's always very honest and entertaining, said basically it was doomed before it started. Uh, like you said, they picked the wrong airport. The growth never materialized, and it was just never going to be successful. In its eight years of operation, Jerry said the Skyport never made a dime, not even a profitable quarter. And, uh, and he, he did tip the hat to the flight simulator's explosive growth to basically keeping things going for as long as it has. And, and let's, let's keep ourselves posted on this because, you know, that FBO, someone else might take it over. Yeah. But as it is right now, it doesn't look, you know, the signs are not looking good for that. And uh, he did mention a couple of things that, as pilots, we need to be wary of, which is, and you and I were talking about this a little bit offline before we started the podcast, you know, when you fly to an FBO and you land and you go ahead and, and grab the crew car and you go to Subway or somewhere local for lunch and then come back, if you don't buy any fuel or oil or have any maintenance or, not, or even say you don't even buy, you know, a map or anything like that, then really the FBO is not making any money. And, and you know, everyone deserves to, to make a, a dollar or two here or there to keep us flying. I mean, that's the key. And we're all cheap. Let's face it. I'm a cheapskate. You know, <laughs> Speak for and, yourself now. <laughs> I know I am. And no, I've talked to other, other pilots who are. They're like, you know, Absolutely, yeah. hey, you know, every nickel and dime counts. And, and I understand that as a former aircraft owner, there's a lot of expense involved in flying as well. But nonetheless, we need to support the FBOs when we can. And I think Jerry was saying that also. He's like, listen, you know, you got to support us a little bit because how else, where else are you going to get your fuel, yeah. you know, to keep flying? So I, there's something to it. Yeah, yeah. I loved his honesty there. I mean, he basically, like you're saying, said, hey, if you're not buying, you know, if you're dropping in, using the crew car, everything else, eating the cookies, you're part of the problem. If you're not, you know, throwing the FBO a little bit of money in terms of fuel sales or whatever. But he turned right around and said, hey, FBO, if I'm dropping in and buying fuel and you're hitting me with all these fees, you're part of the problem. Exactly, exactly. Yeah. That was refreshing to see that. And like he even mentioned that there was some vague security fee at some airports that he landed at. And and, and he brings up a good point, and that's something that AOPA has been fighting for, as you know, Ian, for a little while, which is transparency from FBOs. Just tell us how much does it cost to land here or or park overnight or how much is it? Like what is the handling charge at you know the Cleveland? airport if you're going to you know roll up there and, and spend the night and go to the rock and roll hall of fame so just be honest with us yeah that's right so hey before we leave this i have a confession to make i i enjoyed reading this and i i learned something and i i felt like i have to make this confession when i was um first flying i don't know maybe a couple years into it now keep in mind I was a, not only was I a cheap college student, I was also a self-centered, of course, college student because I was all of, you know, 21 years old or whatever. And uh, a friend wanted to fly to Naples, actually. And this is in season. If you've been to Naples in season, you know it is very busy. They have a lot of jet traffic who's buying, you know, they're buying thousands of gallons of very expensive jet fuel. So I roll up in the 172 and the friend who flew with me takes the crew car. He's gone for an hour and a half. You know, I sit there, I sit in their chairs, I watch their TV. I probably had a cookie or a cup of coffee didn't buy any fuel 
and uh, he came back with a cue car, and they said, nope, don't come back, basically. <laughs> and I remember being very offended, but now I look back, and I think, okay, I went in there, I used their facilities, uh, we used their car, we were gone for an hour and a half, didn't spend any money. It's like, I, I deserve to be banned. So Naples, I'm sorry. Hopefully I can come back someday and buy some fuel and make it right, because yeah, I... I Jerry's post did make me think it's like where where have I been a jerk and and it's probably more places than one honestly you know and I actually probably all of our podcast listeners most or at least some of them might have a similar story and so I um, I might have some you know one or two of my own but we'll save yeah. it for yeah, <laughs> right. save that for another day <laughs> okay hey uh, got to end on some sad news today this has just happened today as we're recording the B seventeen from the Collings Foundation nine oh nine has crashed in uh, Bradley Connecticut. Uh, we know as of the moment we record this, there are five fatalities. When this comes out uh, in a couple of days, probably we'll 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 know more the extent of what happened. But just we want to you know just make a note that uh, we're obviously very sorry to hear about this, sorry to hear about the victims, and you know we'll keep an eye on it as it uh, as it kind of develops. That's right. The Collings Foundation, the Facebook site was uh, was very active with an outpouring of uh, faith and support for all those who were killed and injured and for also, Ian, for the goodness that that organization has done through the years for a lot of folks that they helped get in the air to relive some of their you know flying experiences during World War II um, and at a lot of air shows throughout the country because that is a touring foundation with several aircraft besides the B-17. Yeah, in fact, the Hartford um, Current, which we're looking at for, you know, kind of up-to-the-minute updates, uh, had a story just a couple days ago that said five aircraft are going to arrive at Bradley on Monday. So, as you know, these are ones that they, they travel around the country, kind of the last barnstormers, really. And, uh, yeah, they a lot of veterans take rides and uh, means a lot to a lot of people for them. And so it is sad, um, obviously, the loss of life and, and also the loss of the airplane. There aren't that many of those left. That's right, Ian. You did a little bit of research, and you were just uh, telling me a minute ago that there are just now 10 airworthy B-17s flying, and there were not that many that were uh, flying that that saw combat in Providence. And uh, now, how many how many total were made? Do you re- do you recall? Well, this is according to Wikipedia, um, so you know, consider the source. But uh, 12,731 uh, were built. Uh, they lost 4735 during the war. And uh, they said only five airplanes that survived today saw combat experience, which is uh, incredible when you think about it. 46 airframes in complete form today, 10 are airworthy, 39 of the uh, 46 here in the States, and the rest uh, scattered kind of around Europe and I think one in Brazil. So, yeah, it is um, it is sad, and so it, it just goes to show it's it's important to keep these flying. And I think a lot of the pilots and, and volunteers who work for the Collings and commemorative and, and others that do this they feel a real calling to uh to keep these things flying and, and show them off to the public that's right on a happier note um looking at the future let's bring on jeremy cool guy like you said one of your friends and if you've uh are thinking about a career in aviation or if you're flying for a living now listen to what he has to say he's got a lot of great insight and uh looking forward to hearing more Welcome to Hangar Talk, Jeremy King, the first officer for a major airline flying out of New York City. Jeremy, a longtime general aviation pilot. Tell us a little bit about how you got started in aviation. 
Well, Dave, thanks for having me. I really appreciate this opportunity to uh, sit down and talk airplanes with you a little bit. Basically, I started a long time before the Department of Labor would have appreciated me hanging around the airport. I apprenticed with a little one-man repair shop when I was about 13 years old and started off sweeping floors and holding flashlights. And as my boss was able to see that I had some mechanical skills, he would start up in the ante. You know, he'd say, well, you see how this brake caliper goes together? You think you can change the one on the other side? Yeah. It would just escalate over the years and uh, ended up with me getting my A&P mechanic certificate toured with a little air show team for a couple of years and uh, bounced back and forth different mechanic jobs until I could get into the flying side of things. Well, I should actually let our podcast listeners know here on Hangar Top. By the way, you're, uh, we got Jeremy via Skype. I'm supposed to let folks know right off the bat. But, yeah, we didn't talk too much about this during the intro, but you did start out as an aviation mechanic. And now you've got multiple skills. I know you're a mechanic, you're a pilot. You are also a, a communications major because my wife helped teach a course that you attended at West Georgia, over in Georgia. But now, um, how did you get started with the maintenance side of things? Well, basically, uh, my grandfather was a mechanic for Delta Airlines here in Atlanta. He was a sheet metal uh, mechanic and inspector. And he took me into their hangar one Sunday morning when things were kind of slow, right as he was nearing retirement. And he saw me walking around just like eyes as big as saucers as we were going through these shops. My father was a heavy equipment mechanic for a logging outfit. And mom's idea of daycare was sending me to work with him during the summer. So I was pretty good with my hands, but getting to see a clean shop in the, in the aviation world was an eye-opening experience, to say the least. And then he put me in the pilot seat of a 727, and he pointed to the airspeed indicator, and he knew that I wanted to be a railroad engineer more than anything at that point. And he said, uh, well, Jeremy, how many trains do you know of that can go 330 knots? And it was just kind of like uh, the light bulb came on over my head. All these ideas started percolating, and he he set reasonable expectations from the early uh, from the early stage. He said, you know, we've got no money for you to go straight into the flying side, but maybe we could find a mechanic that would let you apprentice, and you just never know where it'll go from there. Well, that's kind of cool. So you started out more or less, as, like you said, as an apprentice, you know, taking off uh, brake, brake shoes and pads and things like that and figuring it out kind of from the ground up. And how old were you about at that time, Jeremy? I think I was just shy of 14 years old when I showed up at the airport and uh, and started sweeping floors. So, like I said, the Department of Labor wouldn't be too proud to hear that, but I've been doing this since I was a kid. That's right. And now, um, as folks could could listen to us on Skype and on Hangar Talk, they could probably tell a little bit that you and I have the same, more or less the same accent. I'm from Atlanta, and you grew up in uh, West Georgia, near Carrollton, Georgia, which is a great place for aviators, right? Oh, man, it was it was a haven. Um, the West Georgia EAA Chapter 976 used to host a yearly fly-in. And just uh, a few days ahead of the fly-in, some of the performers started trickling into town, and there was this beat-up GMC pickup truck that came around the corner towing a glider trailer. And I had no idea what was going on. All I knew is this high ball of energy climbed out of the driver's seat, and everybody on the airport just was drawn to him. Um, pure magnetism, it seemed. And so I had to go see what the fuss was about. 
And uh, this guy was Chris Smithson. This was my introduction to who would become one of my biggest uh, mentors and friends. And I ended up washing his sailplane in exchange for a ride in his um, in his Zlin 526F. And uh, and it just kind of snowballed from there. I started touring with him on the air show circuit as his mechanic and uh, and publicist. Gotcha. Now I met Chris Smithson. Actually, Dave Hirschman wrote a little story about him back in Atlanta when we were both at the Atlanta Journal Constitution. Yeah, we we all met the uh, a week or two after nine eleven, I believe it was, that you were out there doing the story about all the general aviation flights that were grounded in the week in the uh, wake of the nine eleven attacks. You have a good memory, sir. Very good. Now, at that time, you were a young whippersnapper, you know, going to college, and you had that aviation bug, and you really you fueled that bug, Jeremy. And and tell me how you got your private pilot certificate and, and sort of how you earned that, how you got the money to do that and the time and that kind of thing. Well, I never got the money to do it. That was the trick, is if you can do it exchanging sweat equity and elbow grease in exchange for the flying time, it's a lot cheaper. Okay. There were CFIs on my home field that I would wash, wax their airplanes and help at maintenance time in exchange for a few hours of their time. There were flight clubs and uh, flying schools that I helped with their maintenance in exchange for some block time. And I ended up working for a flight school at Peachtree to Cab Airport and that's where I ended up finishing using an employee discount in the last couple hours to uh, get my private ticket. And from then, once people figured out I was a pilot and a mechanic, people just started giving me keys to their airplanes. And in fact, I've still got a key ring floating over here with probably two dozen airplane keys on it from uh, people who would just be like, well, here, here's the key. Fly it when you want. Just help me to uh, keep the thing running. And uh, I built my time flying on all the airplanes that I was working on. That is cool, and that's a great way to get going. A lot of people could still do that today, really, Jeremy. You could find an airport, find a mentor, hang around, do a little sweat equity, as you said, and that's a good way to keep the expenses down for sure. Absolutely. In fact, there's a fantastic program down south of Atlanta in uh, Williamson that the Youth Aviation Program at the Kendler Field Museum is pioneering, and I, I really encourage people to look into it and they're happy to open their books and give you copies of everything they're doing so you can copy and paste and repeat this uh, process at your home field. But they're, uh, they're having high school kids come in two days a week and work on airplane restoration projects. And they're building their um, building their time towards an A&P certificate. And for every maybe, I think, 10 hours of work, they get an hour of flight time, something like that. That's great. So there's a lot of kids that are, um, that are being exposed to both sides, maintenance and flying, and uh, getting great experience and certainly getting to bypass the big cost of getting into aviation. Absolutely. And that's a, a little shout out. That was uh, Ron Alexander's field down there and Kayla McLeod, one of the young aviators that was, um, I guess, a protege of his, has gone on to help out at Triple Tree Aerodrome and also to help coordinate the young aviators fly in. So that's a little tie in down there south of Atlanta in Williamson Field. That's Peach State Aerodrome, or it used to be called that. Kayla is certainly a force to be reckoned with, and I, I would urge people to keep their eyes on her because she's going great places. And I'm, I'm glad to see her doing what she's doing, and I look forward to seeing some other names and faces come out of that same program. Absolutely. And what folks um, mentored you, Jeremy, and now you can give back and mentor other people. Now I'm going to put you on the spot. Have you mentored anybody yet? Kind of, sort of, yes. One of my mentors that I finished up with, that, I, that helped me to get to the airline experience level that I needed, the, the last couple hours and ratings that I needed, 
he actually had an airport kid hanging around his hangar, and I've kind of co-opted mentoring this guy as he's finished his private certificate and is now trying to decide where to go from here. When I got into the regional airlines, they only required about 210 to 250 hours of experience to get in. And under the new rules that swept in behind me, the bar is up to, I think, 1,200 hours for the to get into the same job. And so sitting down and brainstorming with him to figure out a path to that level of experience to get him into a full-time flying job has been interesting. It's been a lot like getting to sit across the table from me when I was that age. He's in a very similar situation, not a lot of money, but a lot of gumption and uh, a lot of motivation. And I'm glad to see that we've still got airport kids coming into the system. But at the same time, it's also a little bit frustrating in that they've got to pay dues a lot longer to uh, get the same break that I had. Well, and it's expensive. I mean, there's no way around it. It is kind of it is costing. Now, there are scholarships available to folks, especially AOPA scholarships. So there are other options out there, but you have to, again, it's who you know, and it's uh, maybe talk a little bit about your network. How do you network with people and how, you know, what recommendations do you have for the next generation of doing that? Well, you know, go find your local airport. You know, your local airport may not be the one that you think of when you think of your your city and aviation. People think Atlanta and they're like, oh, Hartsfield Jackson International Airport or DeKalb Peachtree. Uh, when in fact there could be a, a much smaller field nearby, go find an EAA chapter, go to a fly-in, and just start start meeting people and hanging out. And things have changed. There's big fences around most airports, but that's due to um, federal security requirements. And you'll find that a lot of times those fences are not nearly as um, as much of a blocking force as they seem at first. I think there's still a lot of couches at FBOs that you could anchor down and make some lifelong friends. And I mean, I'm not really stretching the truth when I tell you that my private pilot ground school was on the couch of the Carrollton FBO reading grungy old back issues of AOPA pilot, a flying magazine. When I tell people that Len Morgan was my ground school instructor. I'm really not stretching the truth at all. There are plenty of good aviation writers out there, and there's a lot of good information that folks can get from magazines such as our own AOPA flight training magazine, AOPA pilot, and many, many others, as you said. And, you know, flipping through weathered copies of Trade of Plane is always kind of cool to set the sights pretty high for a young aviator, you know, that kind of thing. And I always did that myself. I really enjoyed that. And in fact, meeting people, just like in any business, it's the key to the game. I would I would agree with you on that. So now I know that you your life has taken some twists and turns a little bit in the aviation world. And, you know, I don't want to get into it too much, but you've climbed out on top. You are a first officer with a, a major uh, airline. And now you live in Atlanta and then you fly out of New York. Now, how do you get from Atlanta to New York? Like, what's your typical day like? Can you kind of walk us through that? Sure, sure. I usually bid my trips to start late in the evening on the first day. And so what I'll do is I'll get Amy to drop me at the MARTA station on her way to work at 8 in the morning. And I'll uh, ride down to Hartsfield. Um, My airline has a, a late morning flight up to New York, and I usually catch it. And I keep a crash pad in uh, Howard Beach, just right outside of JFK Airport. And I'll go there for a few hours. I'll catch a nap and eat lunch and kind of put the game face on before I start my trip, usually with a red eye, either um, late night down to the Caribbean or over to the West Coast. 
and um, the, the commute is long, but it's it's just kind of part of the job at this point. And every airline pilot goes through a phase, at least, if not an entire career, of having having to catch a ride to work every week. You know, the uh, the reward is certainly worth it, getting to live just about anywhere in the country that you want to be, as long as you can make the commute work. So now that's interesting. Like, my commute over here to AOPA is about, uh, you know, it's like 15 minutes or so, which is pretty good. I live in Urbana. Maryland and our headquarters are in Frederick, about 30 miles north of D.C. Now, your commute's a little bit longer. You've got like about a 700-mile commute, but you're telling me that's just part of the job. It's something to get used to. Yeah, my, my first, uh, the regional airline I worked for was here in Atlanta, and I could drive to the airport, and I had a 30-minute commute, just like most anybody with a, with a normal job. But I was I was one of the lucky ones to to live where I was working, and you'll find that a large percentage of of air crews end up commuting to someplace other than where they work for their uh, for much of their career. So if someone was based out of New York City, they might live in Philadelphia and they commute that way, or out of Washington D.C. or you know somewhere in the suburbs of, uh, of of outside of Denver, and then commute to Denver and start from that. Yes, yep. Um, I've heard of several guys commuting from the West Coast to the East Coast. The record that I have heard of so far, there was one guy who lived in Vietnam and was commuting to, um, I think, Chicago. Oh, my. Um, that may be the record for the longest commute that I've heard of. That's a big one. There's probably some outlier that puts that to shame. But, yeah, realistically, you know, if you're within a three to five hour flight of uh, of the airport's domicile, that's kind of a, a typical commute in this business. Gotcha. Gotcha. And then speaking of commuting and, and places to go and places to see and be seen, you recently had a pretty darn cool landing at a place that a lot of people have seen uh, via YouTube videos, and I'm going to mispronounce it, but is it Maho Beach in Phillipsburg, St. Martin? That's correct. Um, you know, St. Martin has long been a, a haven for av geeks and photographers there's a bar there at Maho Beach that caters to the airplane crowd because the beach is about, I don't know, 50 feet wide, and then there's a road, and then there's the runway. And so basically, you can cling onto the fence as these heavy airliners are throttling up to take off, and, uh, and you can feel the weight turbulence as, uh, as they come in on approach. It is probably the closest you will get to transport category airplane operations in this world. And the fact that it's next to beautiful blue water and salt air in the uh, down the Caribbean is uh, just just an added bonus on top of that. Now, how how high are you guys above the beach when you're coming in on that landing? Probably fifty to seventy five feet over the beach. Usually, we're, we're shooting I think for about thirty five feet over the uh, end of the runway. So I'd say fifty to seventy five feet as we're crossing the beach is probably about right. So does that does that provide a little extra hot air for some of the people that are down there underneath those jet engines? <laughs> I mean, they could get blown away down there. But although although you are on lower power when you're trying to land, but I mean, if you needed a squirt of power or something, I mean, I would think that that might be a little tricky. I haven't heard of anybody being burned there, um, but I have personally been on the beach when a KLM seven forty seven took off about ten years ago. And I thought I was well off to the side enough to be outside the blast zone, but I got sandblasted pretty good. And I had a, I had a little uh, camera, I was, I was videoing it, and I ended up just kind of hunkering behind the camera, using that as a cover for my eyes, trying to keep from getting sand in my eyes. 
so yeah, I don't remember the heat, but I certainly remember being sandblasted. Absolutely, man. Now that's got to be a beautiful place to land. It's um, I'm guessing it's one of your top ten so far. Am I wrong on that? You're not wrong. Um, taking off out of there is just as fun because there's a giant mountain right off the end of the runway, and so basically, as soon as you're airborne, you're making a hard right turn and flying visually between two mountain peaks and out over the water. So the departure. I think is just as much uh, of a challenge as the arrival. Challenging uh, operations there in uh, the Caribbean. That's something a lot of people have faced. In fact, you are, coincidentally, you were down there just a couple of days after uh, there was a Cirrus parachute uh, pool event down there that some folks were rescued by the Regal Princess, basically a cruise ship down there. And you were, you were not far from there during that whole episode. Yeah, and it was funny. I was sitting there on the ground in St. Martin. We had 90 minutes on the ground between uh, arrival and departure, and I was sitting there scrolling through when I first saw the news of that. And, uh, yeah, that was uh, that was another great save for Cirrus. What an innovation that they've brought into the industry. And, you know, what a story that all the uh, all the cruise passengers will have to share about the time they were part of a uh, of a rescue. Absolutely. Well, let's take a quick sidestep. I want to I want to pursue this parachute safety scenario real quick with you. Okay. Now, I'm throwing this out of left field at you, but I know you're an experienced GA pilot, and I know you you know you even though you started in the ranks at sort of in a mentorship process with uh, with the maintenance side of things. But what do you think that says to to parents? I mean, if someone is interested in getting into flight training. Certainly there are other barriers, financial barriers, uh, access barriers, things like that. But I always, you know, revert back to the family. Now, will the family be, will they be comfortable with their child learning about aviation and taking flight lessons? And I want to think that this serious idea of that whole airplane parachute really has helped a lot of people get started in aviation. Well, maybe it has. The flight school that I finished with had had a few Cirruses on the line, although, to be honest, I couldn't afford to rent them at the time. But, you know, if, if you've got the money and they've got the plane, yes, it would be a great combination for a little bit of extra peace of mind from the family back home. But then again, like I said, most of my flight school experiences are at places that a Cirrus is, um, is a mighty expensive acquisition. It, it's a great safety device, and it's done wonders for the industry. But I've just not seen a whole lot of training airplanes that, that had the, the parachute built in like that. Yeah, it's, exp- it's expensive. I'll, I'll give you that. And also, I, I learned on a Cessna 172, it did not have one. But again, you know, you're learning more about safety aspects and what to do if you have an engine out over the, you know, just shortly after takeoff. But beyond that, during flight training, you know, once you get to altitude near the airport, you kind of can glide back to the airport. And then we're always trained to look for an emergency airfield just down the road. So there's two sides of that for sure. Mm -hmm. Now, um, I want to take it back into the financials for a minute. Let's talk a little bit about this and talk about, you know, airline work and, and, you know, compare that to, to say, pursuing medicine or law or, or something like that. Now, are you noticing an uptick at all of fellow pilots coming into the realm of career aviation? It used to be that a lot of people were leaving aviation and going to, to other careers. I, when I first got into the regionals, my first year was about $19,000 pay. And at that point, it kind of stagnated. The retirement age changed from 60 to 65. 
And so for five years, there was no movement. And a lot of people were getting stuck at the bottom of the list and, and not making much money. And I know several people who took that opportunity to exit aviation altogether. Now, things have turned. The regionals are paying a lot more. I'm seeing a lot of fifty to $70,000 first year pay scales in, in the regional world, which is unheard of. I did 10 years in the business and I never made that much money. And so, yeah, it's drawn a lot of people who have been on the sidelines. You know, they may not be as established as, say, you know, a doctor or a dentist, but certainly with with what we would consider a professional career, who are taking a look at the dollars and cents of it. And it is starting to look more and more attractive. So we are starting to draw more people in. But at the same time, we've um, we've sawed the bottom rungs off of the ladder of entry. And so by raising the, the total time required to get into an airline job, I, a lot of my a lot of my peers are are happy to, to see this. They're seeing, you know, more experienced pilots entering the, uh, the career. But the flip side of that coin is that it keeps a lot of people who have great skills and great attitudes from entering. So it's kind of a double edged sword, really. I'm glad you explained it that way, Jeremy. I was thinking about that as you were talking about that. And, yeah, the, the, the entry, a high number of hours that one needs to, you know, basically enter the business will keep a lot of people out. But on the other hand, you mentioned something that I really didn't think too much about, but that was the whole reason to change the number of hours, which is a lot more experience, a lot more under your belt a lot more of real life experiences that uh, the folks coming to the industry would already have. Yeah. All right. So, um, are there are there any um, tips that you would like to throw out at our younger listening audience members or folks who want to make a career change, Jeremy, to pursue aviation as a career pilot? Well, yeah, I would say that keep in mind there's not a one size fits all career solution in this business. I love the airline stuff. It affords me you know, free and reduced cost travel all around the world. It gives me a lot of flexibility in my schedule. I mean, here we are on a Tuesday late morning and uh, and I'm just getting moving for the day. You know, most people with a nine to five job would already be halfway through the work day. So I've got nothing but a honeydew list to deal with this afternoon as I'm working in the yard. But, you know, the airline thing is not for everybody. There's great corporate and charter jobs out there. There's, uh, you know, if your, your tastes run more towards smaller airplanes. There's a lot of people who have made great careers doing uh, like bush flying up in Alaska. There's pipeline uh, monitors that have racked up, you know, 20,000 hours and Super Cubs and 172s. And you talk to any of these guys and they're still just absolutely passionate about what they're doing. And so I just I encourage people looking at getting into the end of the career to make sure they get the right job, that they wind up at the right employer. And even within the airline business, the different airlines have different attitudes and different kinds of flying that they're doing. And I just I, do your homework, decide what it is you want to do. You don't have to make that decision from day one. I mean, honestly, I'm still trying to decide if I'm going to grow up, much less what I'm going to be when I grow up. <laughs> right, exactly. So, but but just keep in mind what you want to be doing and work towards that goal nonstop. So you brought up a couple of good options, Jeremy. Um, Alaska bush flying, that kind of thing. 
we touched a little bit about corporate flying. I mean, do you have any of your buddies that are corporate pilots? That seems like a great way to go, too. I do. In fact, uh, one of my big brothers from the Carrollton Airport, he took me up for my first ride in a J3 Cub about 45 minutes after my first flying lesson. And we spent the afternoon turning toilet paper in a confetti. Oh, nice. And I squarely blame him on the reason why I ended up buying a, a J3 Cub project is because I, I want to keep that level of fun in my flying all the way to the end. But he and his father run a corporate flight department at my home airport at Carrollton. I know several people that are doing air ambulance stuff with Learjets. And it's kind of all over the place. You know, there's you can find a job to fit what you want to be doing and and to fill the, the economic need in your life as well and and find the right balance. And it doesn't always have to be a big hulking airliner. Exactly, exactly. So there are many options for folks. And actually, uh, people could take up flight instructing people who are very passionate about aviation they might be good teachers and that's a another career pilot path as someone who wants to teach others about aviation and they don't really have aspirations to become an airline pilot or a private commercial pilot for a business but they could still teach people and that's a great way to go too absolutely and you know that was the traditional route of paying dues for generations in this business is you would get your ratings and then you would instruct for a year or two before you got your first uh, first big flying job. And kind of an interesting twist, I fly with a lot of airline pilots who are nearing the re mandatory retirement age. They're coming up on 65 and a lot of them start bouncing off of me. You know, hey, Jeremy, you're, you're knee deep in general aviation. You do some magazine writing, you're, you're exposed to everything. What should I be looking at doing for a retirement job? And I try to tell the, these older guys that flight instruction is a viable route for them as well because they can take their years of experience and, and reasonable expectations of, of what to see out in the real world and take that into the classroom and into the cockpits of these trainers and be able to bring a level of instruction to the the young students that they're just not getting from these uh, newer flight instructors. That's right. To bring a level of instruction experience and, and basically excitement, you know, yeah, folks who, who have been in the regional or, or, or major air carrier world can bring a lot to the table. And, and you mentioned something that I wanted to also mention on the Hangar Talk podcast uh, via Skype in that folks can find you, Jeremy, via your articles at Plane and Pilot Magazine, planeandpilotmag.com, right? That's correct. I've been with Plane and Pilot for, I think, three years now. I'm a senior editor. I share a column with a couple other uh, professional pilots, and uh, I sneak in an occasional feature as well. All right. Well, any, any final thoughts, Jeremy? We sure appreciate you being a guest via Skype today. Any final thoughts to the other folks who are listening or they might have an interest in aviation and they just don't know how to get started? Well, you know, it's easy enough to find me and I'm always happy to, to offer, you know, advice. You know, you can find me on Facebook or Instagram or wherever. It's a pretty easy search. But, you know, in the words of, uh, of Christmas and one of my great mentors, dream loudly. And because if you keep it to yourself, other people might be able to help you, but might not know where you're wanting to go. So, Dream loudly, stick with it, and these things pay off. Dream loudly and stick with it. I love that, Jeremy. I sure appreciate it. Thank you very much for joining us on the Hangar Talk podcast at AOPA. We're glad you had time to to uh, spend with us this morning, and I'm sorry that you had a couple of days with nothing much to do, but maybe you can go out there and do some GA flying or work on that, that cub you got there. Oh, I'll have grease under my fingernails before the sun goes down today. 
Dave, thanks for having me. I really appreciate it. All right. Hope to talk to you soon. Thanks, Jeremy. David, so how how did uh, how'd you guys meet? How'd you hook up initially? Well, we met back in Atlanta. Actually, my wife taught Jeremy uh, journalism over at uh, West Georgia College, oh, wow. and uh, which is now part of the University Systems of Georgia. But um, you know, Jeremy and I and Dave Hirschman go back a ways because we kind of piled around with a group of aerobatic pilots in the Atlanta area, and Jeremy was like a part time air show announcer, even as a young person. He was 18, 19 years old, and he would announce at some of these air shows. But you know what, Ian? He started out really wrenching on a lot of these aircraft, as he told us, and then he traded some of that time for, for flight time, and before you know it, he really developed a fondness for you know grass fields and tail draggers and, and just really came up through the ranks. It's very, very enlightening to, to know Jeremy and, and folks like him that would want to get involved in aviation in that manner. Yeah, that's great. That's great. Hey, that's all the time we have for this week. I'm Ian Twombly. Our editor is Austin Hansen. And I'm David Tulis. Don't forget, you could find us at aopa.org slash hangartalk. We're also on iTunes at the Sporties Takeoff app and on Spotify and the AOPA Hangar. All right. We'll see you next time. See you next time, Ian. Hangar Talk from AOPA. Your freedom to fly.